welcome to the Faith Heights Church audio podcast. We pray that this message will bless you and feed your faith as you listen in today. I want to share something that has radically changed my life. I, I have just stopped preaching on stuff that has, isn't working in me. Everything that uh, I preach today is something that God has done a deep work in my life in. And so the title of the, 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 the talk today is uh, Our Elusive Hunt for Happiness. Do we have that title slide, you guys? There it is. So isn't happiness a little bit like that? You know, grabbing that helium balloon, trying to, you know, how, how, how do we hold on to it? You see, America is really supposed to be the land of happiness. This is where everyone comes. You know, people want to come to America. They want to live in America. Because in America, we promise this thing called the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. This is where we can be happy. This is where we can find everything we need in life. And I'm a part of that. I'm a Canadian. I came to America in 1984. And I love America. I love what this country stands for. I love that the gospel's going forth from this country around the world. I love that there's these amazing churches that are just peppered and salted all over uh, our, our country and that there's these great you know men and women that are proclaiming the gospel and so many wonderful things in America I love Canada too it's a good country you know we don't have as much uh, as many people or as much money or you know we got two tanks and a submarine but that's why we live close to you as we know, nobody's going to let anything happen to Canada as long as America's next door, right? So we're in good shape. So we just took all that military money and we poured it into our health care and everyone gets free medicine in Canada. It's an awesome thing, so thank you. Of course, our taxes are 53%, but uh, that's another story. Didn't come to talk politics today. But we have this thing in America, and really it's around the world, of this pursuit of happiness. But the sad thing is, according to universal, national, international studies, we are actually number 15 in terms of countries who are happy, truly happy. And so, I, I got that, because I found myself 10 years ago coming out of my addiction, coming out of my sin, coming out of my brokenness, 23 years of secrets uncovered, destroyed my marriage, uh, lost everything financially, house in foreclosure, bankruptcy, empty bank account. Literally, I got so low at one point, I had to borrow money from my best friend just to make it through a month, which was just devastating. Lost relationship with my three 20-something boys because they were so disappointed in their father. Out of the ministry, out of the church, friends wouldn't take calls, and I just feel so alone. So, 
I told a little bit of the story last time, but the Lord miraculously, beautifully, in all of that death and loss, gave me a resurrection. Because you see, you see uh, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive, all right? So it's not about behavior modification. It's about bringing this life and resurrection into our souls where all of a sudden we discover who we really are. And we discover what God can really do. So this resurrection came into my life and slowly he began to just bring all of this goodness and love. And, and, the, and the most beautiful thing was he, he set me free from my past. Completely delivered me from my past. Listen, I spent all of these years waking up every day addicted to this sin. Couldn't stop it. Couldn't let it go. I'd have periods of freedom and then I'd go right back to it. And it was just like this never-ending cycle. This addictive enslavery to the pornography and to the lust and to the mess that uh, happens in that world. And I was just like, I remember looking in the mirror and saying, oh God, deliver me from this. Oh God, help me. And then finally, after years and years of never getting free, it was more like I'd look in the mirror and say, I hate you. I hate who I see in the mirror. I, I, I loathed who I'd become. And I didn't know how to get free. And the problem was, I thought that I had to do it alone. Because, I, you know, in the church world, sometimes we feel like, well, who can I really trust with my story? Like, what if I share this? Well, will I lose everything? Will I be kicked out? Will, you know, will I be marked? And, you know, uh, and I, so I, I, I thought, I've got to win this on my own. I can't take the risk of trusting anyone with my story. And it didn't work. And finally, by God's terrifying grace, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but it's a beautiful, scary thing. The terrifying grace of God came and exposed my sin. He gave me a thousand chances to deal with it in a private way. But finally, he saw I was never going to do that, and by his grace, he said, okay, I'm pulling it back so you can be set free. Yeah. He set me free. Took a year and a half. Spent $30,000 in a recovery center in Phoenix. Came back, went to three men's groups a week, Christian 12-step groups. Went to my counselor, Dr. Ken McGill, for three years. Read, studied, prayed, cried out to God. Had three men who were pastors that just were my, my mentors and accountability team, and I committed to them. I will do nothing without your uh, approval, without your direction, because I've made all the bad decisions for, for all these years, and I, I, I need, so I just walked in humility. I uh, turned in all my technology, didn't have a computer for about a year, didn't have a cell phone. Can you imagine that? Living in this world without a computer or a cell phone. Well, I had a cell phone, but it was a little flip phone, Nokia. All it could do was talk. That's it. Nothing else. No internet, no, no texting. I mean, all it could do was answer, answer calls. I mean, I radically 
just gave my life to say, Jesus, I, 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 I am going to get free. And the difference was this time is that I entered into this beauty of James uh, where he says, confess your sins one to another, pray for one another that you may be healed. You see, forgiveness comes from God, but healing comes in private confession when we share our story with somebody we can trust that can help us and guide us in community you see when lazarus came out of the grave he walked out of the grave but he was still in all his grave clothes so he's walking out like a mummy grave clothes everywhere now if i'm jesus i would have done it better I would have called Lazarus out and he would have just kind of come, you know, kind of sweeping out in a three-piece suit, preaching, ready to go. But you see, Jesus was showing us something. He came out all mummified, still in grave clothes, totally alive. But Jesus said, all right, family, friends, help to unravel him so that he can walk totally free. And see, there's this beauty of what God does in our life and what Jesus does combined with what his people do and really what he is doing through his people to set us completely free. And that's why we need this. That's why Sunday mornings aren't an option. Church, we, we got to have each other. We don't just come to hear a message. We come to love. Stand up, my brother. We come to, to do this and say, man, I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm not going to let you go. I've been praying for you this week. That's part of this community is that we have each other's backs and that we're caring. And I'm so thankful that I had men in my life that, that saw some grave clothes and said, listen, if you get that off, if you'll unravel that, man, you'll really walk free. So, just over a year later, completely free. 23-year addiction, completely free. Never went back. Never had one relapse. And, and by God's grace, and his good people, and my beautiful wife, and all of those that I've surrounded my life with, never will. By God's grace. It's not, this isn't human will. This isn't I did it. This isn't white knuckling. This is freedom. This is getting up in the morning and not even thinking about it anymore because I'm just so free inside. And I've got too many other things I'm thinking about. Jesus is so beautiful. His resurrection is so powerful. And so, I'm walking free now. A year and a half later, this is 2010, so it's been close to 2012. Now I'm living in freedom out of this, you know, terrible past, addiction's gone, but I'm encountering something else, folks. There's this thing that it stayed with me, and I didn't know what to do with it, and it was just, it was ugly. I don't know really how to even describe it. People call it despair. They call it depression. I remember going to my counselor, I said, why, you know, I'm free from this, why am I so depressed still? Why am I living in this, this despair? And really, like, why am I not happy? Where's the happiness that should be following right now? The counselor said, well, Blaine, you've been through a lot. And uh, the truth is, you know, in the psychology community, it goes like this. If you've had one major loss in your life, you, it'll take a year for you to recover out of that grief and sorrow and sadness a year. And you had five. 
You lost all your money, you lost your reputation, you lost your career, you lost your marriage, you lost your kids. He said, you can count on five years. Well, thank you, brother. <laughs> Just paid you $150 to tell me my life is gonna suck for five years. I really appreciate that. And when I talk about depression, I know we've all been depressed here. There's not a person in this room that hasn't suffered with some level of depression. Some a little bit more, some a little bit less, and some like me where you just wanted to die. I mean, where I felt like I was in the deepest, darkest hole, couldn't see, kept scrambling trying to get out, and never saw the light of day. You know, when they call it depression, I used to listen to people, are you depressed? Well, you'll get over it. Everything will be fine. It's just a little depression. I couldn't even call it depression. It was like a monster from hell that wouldn't let go of me. It shows up. And, what, and the crazy thing, you guys, was it would show up when I should be happy, when I should be ready to go. And all I could do when it would just continue to show up every day was I would just want to escape to the point where I remember sitting in my apartment late one night, about two and a half years after my crisis, surrounded by several bottles of pills and a couple bottles of alcohol that I went out and bought. And I thought, I'm going to drown it all. I'm going to end it. Oh, and thank God, my best friend Michael at that time, all of a sudden, ring 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 on my phone and i'm like hello <laughs> hey man what you doing man i'm uh, just about to kill myself uh do, can you hold on yeah i mean like and i just said bro I'm, I'm lost and he walked me off the edge gave me some beautiful counsel but it took another two years and I started escaping another way. Didn't escape through alcohol, didn't escape through pills, didn't escape through porn. My escape every day was napping. Naps. It was the safest, healthiest way to escape. Because I knew if I could get to sleep, it wouldn't exist while I was sleeping. I wouldn't feel it. The problem with naps is I kept waking up. And I'd go a little while, and then I'd nap again. Like, I was a professional napper. I could nap anywhere, anytime. But I had a job, too, so that kind of interfered. So it still was incredibly burdensome and troublesome. And so, as a Jesus follower, and as a lover of God now, and I'm pursuing Jesus, and I'm so gra grateful for the freedom from my past, I'm now pursuing him for freedom from a broken heart. Because Jesus came and he said, I'm going to set the captives free, but I'm also going to heal broken hearts. That's our soul. See, there's people that when they get into captivity and when brokenness comes in and when they suffer loss and when sin begins to break us, it, not only does that happen, but then the heart, the soul breaks as well. And I began to seek into the kingdom of God and say, Jesus, how? Can you bring healing to this broken heart? So I started reading the Bible everywhere. I went all the way back to the Old Testament. And I love the Old Testament because it gives us a, uh, just such a, a, a beautiful picture 
in preparation for the coming of God through Jesus. And we see so many types and shadows that are preparing us to receive the Messiah. But all the rabbis in these 39 books that were put into canon, now canon, you understand, is like, is what we would consider the scripture, all right? So the books that are in the Bible. In the New Testament, uh, canon was established in just uh, after the year 300, where they said, okay, these are the 26 books of the New Testament. So when they were canonizing the Old Testament, there were three books that they weren't sure about. They weren't sure about Esther. They weren't sure, well, the reason they weren't sure about Esther was because there wasn't one naming of God in the entire book of Esther. There was no Jehovah or God or the Lord. It's, just, it's a story. It's a beautiful story, and it's a narrative and picture of God and of his love for us, and that's why they included it. And then the second book that they debated on was the Song of Solomon. For obvious reasons. If you've ever read it, I would classify Sol Song of Solomon as uh, PG-13, couple verses, you know, closing in on R. Like, it's, it's pretty descriptive, but it's kind of fun descriptive, you know? It's like uh, your teeth, you know, like it's these two lovers. They're just talking back and forth, and it's a be beautiful picture of uh, both uh, human love and marital love, but also God's love for us and this intimacy that we can have with each other and with God. But, you know, it's kind of a, it's, they're fun descriptions. Like, you know, the guy says, oh, honey, you know, my beloved, your teeth are like sheep dancing in the, in the field. And, and, you know, so it's, it's fun, but then it's, you know, it is descriptive. But they kept it in. And then the third book that they debated on was Ecclesiastes. They weren't sure about this book because it was so depressing. <laughs> Don't know if you've ever read it, but if you're having a bad day, you might move over to Psalms. But I came across this book. And you can imagine this depressed soul, this, this man that just cannot get out of his despair, comes across Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon, this incredible king, richest man in the world, most powerful man in the world. I mean, he had money and palaces and servants and, and entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. I mean, there was, there was no man that was more respected in the world at that time than Solomon. And so here is Solomon, and he's writing this book. And so I'm like, starting to read it and I open the first chapter and so chapter one I get down one verse one verse now I'm looking right? trusting God to get me free and I read this verse two and it says meaningless meaningless says the teacher utterly meaningless everything is meaningless yeah. Woo! that's a promise I can stand on oh yes thank you for meaninglessness Lord and I'm like, what is going on? Is this even in the Bible? And I'm like, it's got to get better. And I look up the word meaningless. I, knew, I felt like I knew what it meant. But it literally means, or it's a Hebrew word, hebel, which means vapor or smoke. He said, life is just like this vapor. You think you have it and you don't. It's there, it's gone. And I thought, oh, that's so true. Thought I had, oh, it's gone. 
Bought a new car, happy, happy, gone. Got a duster when I was 16, 225 slant six, zero to 60 in a day and a half. But that, that happiness vapor was gone. Then I had to get a Camaro, green, black stripes. Happy, happy, vapor gone. Camaro's great, get a Firebird. Firebird, happy, happy, vapor gone. Trans Am, I just kept going up. Till finally I got to my ultimate car, the car that I thought would really bring me true happiness. I finally got, saved enough money over time to, to buy a Porsche 911. Happy, happy, happy. Happy, happy. I mean, happiness did last a little bit longer. But then it was gone. Sold the Porsche. I'm not against cars. I love cars. Still got one. But I found out all of this life in this world, as Solomon said, is like it gets vaporized. But I kept reading. Some now in chapter 4. And I thought it would get a little bit better, but no. It says, I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Better than both is he who has never yet been, who has never seen the evil that can be done under the sun. Oh my goodness. But I just kept reading. And I just kept reading. Finally got to, I think it's 12 or 13. And he comes up with this one answer. Remember now thy creator in the days of your youth. It's all about God. It's all about our creator. And I thought, I'm not even young, but I'm going to do it. And so I, I just began to say, okay, God is the answer, but I've got to figure out how God shows up. But you know what I'm going to tell you? I was so blessed by that book when I finished it. Because I felt like God came alongside me and said, I get you. Even in this, I get you. I put a whole book in the Bible to say, I understand. You're not crazy. It's okay. I am going to show up and help you. And Solomon became my, like, my soul buddy, my friend. I can't wait to see him one day and just, bro, yeah, we made it. We figured it out. And so I thought, okay, I got some hope, and, I, and I'm not feeling alone. And so I just began to read about happiness and read about, you know, depression. I began to study from scripture to psychology to counselors to to uh, influencers. And I remember one of the great psychologists I read after from Canada. What, a, what an incredible man. Uh, his name is, let's see, do we have that next slide? Yeah, Jim Carrey. He said, I hope that everyone could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know it's not the answer. And I thought, yes, Jim. Good stuff, bro. I kept reading and kept reading and and then one day I got, a, I got a, a call from my son. And my son had attempted suicide when he was 25, just before my crisis. 200 Advil, alcohol. Somehow in his 
comatose or about to be comatose state. He hit, he hit 911 and Maddox showed up. By the time we got to the hospital, he was in a coma, dumped charcoal down his throat to try to stop the, the impact of the, all of this, these drugs. And about three hours later, you know, we're still sitting, praying, standing in that hospital room downtown Dallas, and he just kind of comes out of it. And we were in tears, and we're hugging him, and we're just saying, oh, God, thank you for our son, that we didn't, didn't lose him. And there was this gratitude and this love. And, and I just said, Jeremy, t you know, tell me what's going on. I had lunch with him that day. It was a Sunday. We had been to church that morning. I was in my truck after lunch. I was dropping him off, and I said, you know, is everything okay? Are you okay? Everything going good in your life? Because he was on his own, and he said yes. I said, Jeremy, you've got to tell me. You've got to talk. You've got to open up. And we got him into counseling, and about a year after that, he's a film producer. He went to Africa to do a documentary. And he sends me this picture from Africa. And there it is. He's, uh, he's the white one. It's hard to see the rest because they are incredibly dark-skinned. But you can see that guy right next to him. That was his buddy. And his buddy and all of his friends, he said, Dad, they're the happiest people I've ever been around. He said, they don't have Facebook. They don't get liked on Instagram. They don't know what a tweet is. They've never seen an iPhone. They've never driven a car. They're lucky to have a bicycle. They eat what they hunt. They live in a tent. They don't wear many clothes. But he said, Dad, these are the happiest young men I've ever been around in my life. He said, I want to move to Africa. And I said, I'm with you. I want to have that happiness. And it put me on an even deeper quest to say, okay, if these folks can be happy, I can be happy. What is the secret? And the secret, psychologically, that led me into this new Jesus experience that I speak of, it began with this. It began with three cups. One day, I found out that psychologically and by human experimentation and research, that our happiness is found in three cups. Interesting. In fact, this guy, uh, James Montier, I think we have a picture of him, He's called the prophet in pinstripes. He's a global equity strategist, and for years, he's a guy from London, for years, he uh, invested in the stock market, all of them. And he would invest not for himself, but for millionaires and billionaires. And he just had the stock market and economies figured out. He was brilliant, still is. So he began to make all this money for other people. And millionaires were becoming multimillionaires, and multimillionaires were becoming billionaires, and in the process, he got rich because he was commissioned off it all. And after 10 years of this, he took a step back, and he said, wait a minute. 
I'm making all this money, I have all this money, and all these people have all this money, and yet none of us are happy. He said they are going through divorces, they're losing their kids, some of them have taken their lives, they're just miserable people, most of them. And he said, I'm not that happy. And so he took a million bucks, went to an Ivy League school, commissioned a study on happiness. Said, I want you to go around the world universally, interview, talk to people, and find out what makes a human being happy. And they came back a year later and they published uh, this uh, document called The Psychology of Happiness. And I read it, and I reread it, and I read it, and I reread it. And it was the most amazing thing. In the end, it came down to this there are three human containers for happiness. The first container right here was a 50% container. 50% of our happiness as a human being is, is found in this one thing, genetics. Oh, really? So 50% of our happiness is like genetic. We're, we're, we're either predisposed for a certain level of optimism and happiness or predisposed for a less, lesser level. But there's some genetics, and you know that. You've been around people who are way too happy. <laughs> like, they're Tigger, right? We got Tigger. And then we've been around the Eeyores too, right? Both. And we live with them. We put up with their... You know, they're crazy, joyful stories, you know, that they never have a bad day. And then we try to get through, you know, the Eeyores who every day's bad and you just want to kill yourself after you've talked to them. And so we've all been there. And so most of us, including myself, we're somewhere, you know, in the middle. You know, we're like 30% of the 50 or we're 40 or whatever. So that, I believe that to be true. It's been proven. Second container, this was the surprise. Because this container has 10% of human happiness attached to it. So if you really do this well, you could be 10% more happy. So I'm like, okay, tell me what it is. And I find out this is what it is, circumstances. How much money you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you have, who you married, what color your skin is, where you were born. Circumstantial events bring 10% of our happiness. And I thought, oh my goodness, has America ever been lied to? Because we are telling everybody through commercials, through television, through social media, we're telling everybody, if you want happiness, just get a new car, get a new wife, get a new job, move to a new city. All you need is new. All you need is something else. There's just one more thing, and finally, no. So we're investing 100% of our energy, our life, for a 10% return. And we wonder why. We're not living into this happiness. Now listen, I, I want to make no mistake this morning. I want the 10%. Yeah. 
I'm not willing to give it up. Like, I'm going to do everything in my, in my power to fill the 10% up with stuff that I enjoy. You know, and, uh, you know, like have transportation, have shelter, and, you know, live in a good community, and keep advancing, and keep growing, and, and uh, being a better leader, and being better. So I, I want all that, but I've come to realize that's, that's not the primary answer. And so I finally got to number three. And this is, a, this is the cup, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, beloved. This is the cup that will change your life. This is the Jesus cup. Let me explain. They came to the conclusion, secular study, that 40% of human happiness and joy comes from intentional activity. Stuff that you decide to do. But not just any kind of intentional activity. Like not stupid stuff. Not bad stuff. Not harmful, unhealthy stuff. But they said being intentional with your faith, your family, your friends, and your fun. And then they qualified it. They said deep faith, deep friendship, deep family, deep fun. And I started thinking about that. I had never experienced deep friendship. Everything was shallow. Hit everything, surface, hit and run coffees, hit and run friendships. Drive by hellos, goodbyes. Never had deep family. You know, hi and bye to my brother, my sister, my family, my friends, my nephew, my nieces. Just, you know, didn't want to go deep. Didn't want to invest. Faith, I was a preacher, Christian, but honestly, was shallow. Was shallow. I learned how to do it. I was a Christian, I loved Jesus, but I just, I learned how to preach, I learned how to communicate, I learned how to do television, I learned how to write, I learned how to do all that stuff. And I could do all that stuff well enough to, you know, influence people and they would receive and it was the scripture and it was the word and I talk about Jesus so they'd be helped and that was all good but in terms of my own life there wasn't this deep crying out to God this deep faith in my own soul you know I would study the Bible just to get a message oh that's good I'd be halfway through some crazy event in my life that was happening in the moment as a preacher and I'd already be writing a sermon about it oh this is good that, that'll go good in my message next week so I didn't have this, like, buying in, this, this going deep with God and really knowing who Jesus was and letting Jesus, like, transform my soul, to, to transform my heart, to, to, to preach and speak and live out of this truly born-again relationship, this truly new birth. And then I, I wasn't having any fun because we don't have a lot of fun anymore in America because we're just going so hard. We're working so hard, and we're going here, and we're going there. Everyone's got three jobs, and got to take care of the kids. And when do we, when do we really engage in fun? And, and I was reminded that God put Adam and Eve in a garden full of adventure and lakes and rivers and trees and crazy animals. And then he just said, there's really no rules except for one. Just don't eat from this one tree. That's it. 
Other than that, no rules. That sounds like fun. Like just go and enjoy and build and do and, and it just, you know, we've lost the fun. Eden means delight. We've lost just the delight of being human and being image bearers of God. So I thought, okay, 40%. And I thought, okay, let's say I got 30% genetics. Let's say I even get 5% of circumstantial. That's 35. If I can get 40% intentional, I'm up to 75. And I'm going to be happy most of the time. And I'd been depressed most of the time, so I thought, I'm working on that. And so I said, God, tell me how to do it. Show me how to do it. I'll leave you with this. He said, read the first message that I brought to mankind after Eden, face to face. Really? Okay. There's this thing called theophany. Theophany. It's a theological word for the appearance of God or the seeing of God. We can have theophanies. Moses had a theophany. He saw God and heard God in a burning bush. They had the cloud by day, the fire by night, and God was present even though it wasn't face to face. They could see God present in his leading. But the greatest theophany that ever happened was when God appeared as God in Jesus. Paul calls Jesus the express, exact representation of God. This is what God looks like. This is who God is. This is how God talks. This is what God believes. Everything we need to know about God is in Jesus. And so he said, I want you to read the first message I had to humankind face to face after the garden. And I went and found it. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shows up after his baptism, after calling his disciples, ready to get the mission started, and he shows up on this mountain, thousands gather at this beautiful mountain hill, and, and he begins to bring the first message from God in about 6,000 years. God is is speaking to humanity for the first time. Now, I want you to imagine all of this message had been stored up in God for 6,000 years, and all of a sudden, God gets to finally say what he's been wanting to say to humankind for all these thousands of years. Like, he's ready to finally set everything straight. He's ready to finally help us to, you know, get things the way they need to be to make all things right and... The first words out of his mouth. In fact, the very first word was blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. And he goes on. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the humble. The, the, uh, those that have disciplined themselves under the care of God, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, or the shalom makers, or the ones that bring pre peace into relationships, into the workplace, into the world, in your own soul. 
And it just goes on like there's nine blesseds. And I'm reading these. And I'm thinking, okay, God wants to bless us. But I didn't know what the word blessed meant. Because it was a Christian word, right? I got to say, when I was 16, Pentecostal church, all these old-time Pentecostals in this church, about 100 of them, and they were just on fire for God, and they'd never seen young people get saved, so we had like 70 teenagers out of our school that got saved, started coming to this church, and the, uh, the, the old saints just loved us. I remember the grandmas coming up to me and saying, oh, Brother Blaine, so good to see you again. Uh, Brother Blaine, you are just blessed. You're a blessed young man. You're blessed coming in, and you're blessed going out. God's blessing you with every spiritual blessing. And I kept hearing this word, and I loved it, but I didn't know what it meant. I just thought it was like this mystical, magical wand that God just kind of hit us with, you know, like we're blessed. Didn't know what it meant, but I received it. And the Lord told me, you better figure out that word blessed, because it's a key to your happiness. So I looked it up. It's a Greek word. The Greek word is makarios. Makarios. It's not a religious word. It's not a rabbi word. It wasn't a synagogue word. It was this crazy word. William Barclay, the great theologian, said this. Makarios describes that joy which has its secret within itself. That joy which is serene and untouchable, and self-contained. That joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. Human happiness is something which life will give, and it may destroy, but the Christian blessedness is completely untouchable and unassailable. The Macarius word literally was translated in that day as this, the ecstasy of the gods. You see, the Greeks had all these gods, hundreds and hundreds of them. And they believed that these crazy gods that weren't real, they believed that they lived in this ecstasy that was beyond human. This ecstasy that was self-contained. that They didn't need something to find it. It was there. It was with them. And so Jesus takes this secular Greek word, steals it, pulls it into the church, and into the kingdom of God and says, I've come to give you that thing that you thought was untouchable. I've come to give you that thing that you thought you couldn't even lay a hand on. He said, all this makarios that you guys just dream that the gods have, he said, I've come to bring it to you. The blessedness of living into the kingdom. And he said, this is how. And this is where it gets interesting. By giving your life away because when you're mourning for somebody it's not about you and when you're being a peacemaker ain't about you when you're showing mercy it sure isn't about you because we want justice and when you're going through hardship and trials and persecution but Jesus says you stay steady and stay strong and you'll be blessed that's not about you either, because it'd be a lot easier just to take a pill, take a drink, find some way to numb your pain, instead of living into it and trusting God to get to the other side. You see, all of this blessed stuff is 
the way of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the giving of our life away to our brother, to our sister, even to our enemies, loving people well, loving our spouse well, loving our family well, loving our kids well, loving this world with the love of Jesus. And he said, there's this counterintuitive thing that will happen when you dare to give your life away. You will actually find it. You will actually live into this blessed hope. And it will be self-contained. And it will be beautiful. And so I just started to try to do that. And I'm going to tell you, it is hard sometimes. Because you don't want to be nice. And you don't want to be kind. And you want to hold on. And you don't want to be generous with the resources and the, the life that you've been given because human nature says no. Human nature says there's a scarcity mentality that we got to hold on. But Jesus said, I want you to give your life away. If someone asks for your shirt, give me your coat and the shirt. Someone says, hey, I need you to go a mile. I said, go to. said, give your life away and watch what happens. And slowly but surely, my soul began to be transformed, and I began to live into this, and I began to pray into it, and I began to step into it, and God began to change everything. And I can tell you today, five years later, I am a happy man. I'm a Macarios man. I'm living into a joy that I didn't even know existed. And I know how to do it every day. I just keep giving my life away. And life keeps coming back. Because anytime we lose our life for Jesus, he saves it and multiplies it 30, 60, 100 times, whatever we walked away from or whatever we sowed. Oh, I love this life. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information about this ministry, visit faithheights.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. To sow into this ministry, visit faithheights.org and click on the Donate tab.